and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. Today's episode includes myself, Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado, and I am joined today by my lovely co-host, Caleb Bratt, owner of Journey Dog Training. Hi. So today we're going to be talking about one of our favorite topics, and that is scent enrichment. So Kayla, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what scent enrichment is and why it's so important? Yeah, absolutely. So scent enrichment is kind of a broad term that basically just entails anything that you're doing or allowing your dog to do that involves him or her using his nose um, generally to find things, but also just to gather information about his or her environment. Um, So and it it's important for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of my favorites is it really just provides an opportunity for your dog to engage in his or her superpower using his nose in a variety of ways. And as you guys may remember, I work for an organization that uses dogs and their noses to do stuff that humans and current technology just wouldn't allow us to do otherwise. So working dogs for conservation, we use our dogs, um, to sniff out sometimes, uh, Everything from hidden ivory that poachers are trying to hide from people to noxious weeds that are shorter than the prairie around them, so really hard to find with a visual search, to, um, you know, just animal scat that's going to be very, very difficult to find visually. So um, I, every day, am impressed with how good dogs' noses are, and it's just, it's an amazing gift that we can give them to let them use it. Um, And it's something that we forget about a lot as humans because olfaction using our noses is not our primary way of interacting with the world but it is for our dogs um so the other thing that we find really really useful and interesting with scent enrichment is that it um it can be more tiring for our dogs um and especially it can be tiring for dogs that have tendencies like uh say my dog barley to become kind of uh, endurance athletes. The yeah. more we exercise them physically, yeah. uh, the more they want and the more they need and the more they can do, um, which works for me and Barley in my particular case, because I also run marathons. Uh, <laughs> but it's not <laughs> the case for many people. Most people yes. would rather their dog not be capable of running a marathon. Um, and this mental enrichment can be much more tiring, much more quickly. And at least I mean, I have found in my line of work that, yes, the dogs build up stamina for it, but it's not quite the same um, as a dog who builds up stamina for, say, running. Um, And it's really, really great for dogs that are worried about the world, whether they're aggressive in their response to the world or fearful in their responses to the world. This is a really good way to get them some mental and physical exercise um, that doesn't involve necessarily taking them out for a really long leashed walk that might be stressful for them. Mm-hmm. It's also really great for crappy weather. Um, I am in Missoula, Montana, and it is currently like 40 degrees and raining on top of a bunch of snow. It's going to freeze later tonight. Um this is a great time to do nose work yeah. indoors instead of taking barley for a long walk. I did that yesterday. It was snowing all day long yesterday. And Sully and I did a bunch of nose work in the house. I mean, I, I did still layer up and go outside cause he loves that, but, yeah. um, you know, not for so long cause it was blistery and very windy. So yeah, it, it, you're right. It is great for those days where you're just like, I got to tire you out somehow. Mm-hmm. Let's do it through your brain. So, yeah, I know I do it a lot when I'm really short on time, too, because, mm-hmm. again, generally it works for me and Barley that he kind of needs or wants a run or a hike every single day. Generally, mm-hmm. that's fine because that works in my lifestyle. But there are days where it's not <laughs> and yeah. I can go out and do 15 minutes of nose work and he'll be much more tired and satisfied than if I tried to take him for a 15 minute run. Mm hmm. So, Marissa, what are some different types of scent enrichment that we can try with our dogs? Yeah, so we have a few here that are a little bit uh, DIY, so you can do it yourself at home. So the first one that we have are um, essential oils or perfumes or spices. 
something that we can add just a very little amount onto, let's say a towel or a paper towel or a toilet paper roll or something like that. And then we can present it to our dogs. And we want to make sure that, you know, when we say a little bit, we just want to do a drop or two, because if you, if you think about it, our dogs have 300 million scent receptors versus us who have 6 million scent receptors. So just because it smells either mild or less potent to us, imagine that it's that it really, really, really is intense and, and smells a lot to our canines. So we want to be really careful that we're not, you know, uh, Kayla used a really great example. Like you're not, you're not taking like a tablespoon of cinnamon and, you know, um, placing it on a towel or something like that, or placing it inside a PVC pipe, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and, and not having that, that dog be inundated with that smell. And the best way that you can, can tell whether or not the animal is enjoying that and is actually finding the smell enriching is whether or not they engage in it versus whether or not they walk away or avoid or, you know, just try to get as far away from the smell as possible. So um, this goes to a really important point that enrichment is only enrichment based off how the learner responds to it. So what's enriching to me might not be enriching to Kayla and vice versa. So we want to make sure that whatever it is that we're presenting to them, that, that they're actually engaging, they like it, they're interacting with it somehow. And it is, um, you know, a great activity for them. So that's one example. Another example could be animal sense. So back when um, Kayla and I were in the behavior department at Dumb Friends League, um, I, I used to order what was it, like fox urine and like duck scent. Like it was all these like hunting hunting oils or something like that 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 I purchased from a hunting online store or something like that. And, uh, what we would do again, very similar to the essential oils is put it on a specific surface and then put that surface into the animal's kennel. And we would do, um, we would do a different scent each day so that the animal had novelty there. And sometimes you could put this on, you know, other things outside of a towel, such as like a tug toy or the the toy at the end of a, of a flirt pole. And dogs could either engage in the smell by like tugging the toy, or sometimes they might go bury it. Um, sometimes they might just play with it. So, so these are just a few ideas in terms of ways to cover already existing items with novel smells. Um, our last two examples, one includes, and I love this, um, taking a PVC pipe and drilling holes in it and then getting the caps and, um, you know, putting one cap on the, the end of the PVC pipe and then keeping the other cap off. And you could put cinnamon sticks inside or you can take that, you know, towel that's got a few scents of essential oils on it. And you could put the towel inside the PVC pipe and then you, and then you close it uh, using the cap on the other side. And you can give that to the toy. You can give that toy to your dog and they can engage with that PVC pipe. So that's one idea. And then our last idea is um, tossing treats in the yard and letting your dog hunt for them. So lots of times I'll have clients sort of take their or measure out their uh, dog's dinner in the food bowl and then say, find it. And then they sprinkle it all throughout their backyard so the dog can hunt for the meal. So all this is, you know, stuff that you probably already have at home and it's super easy to do. It's really, really quick. And um, it, it provides a lot of really great novelty and scent enrichment for our canines. You have anything else to add, Kayla? Uh, yeah, I mean, the only other thing I'd add, and this is really, really easy, is just to let your dog sniff on walks. Um, Barley and I have a really great routine of, you know, not just do I, you know, I've got the six foot leash and it's it's loose. You know, sometimes we, mm -hmm. I've been noticing more and more um, as I've been thinking about this and paying attention to it, people will have a six foot leash, but they're holding it a foot from their dog's neck to mm -hmm. try to pull their dog in and keep their dog close to heel position. Um, and uh, so their dog can't go anywhere and their dog yeah. can't sniff anything at so all. They're really on like, very common. They're like on a two foot leash, basically. Yeah, yeah you yeah. might as well just hold on to your dog's collar at that yeah. point. <laughs> um, I find that very frustrating as a way to walk. I think most dogs do. Anyway, that's not quite the point here. The point here is 
six foot leash or longer. Um, I live in an area um, where I frequently can walk with a 10 foot leash without getting mm-hmm. in trouble as far as, um, you know, too many too many passers by getting um, tangled up. Um, and letting your dog sniff. You know, we go at my dog's pace when we're walking. And um, we've also got pretty good about, um, you know, I can kind of tell when there's something coming up that generally is a good place to sniff. And instead of setting him up in a situation where he wants to pull me towards it, I just walk with him towards it. You know, there's that mm-hmm. one bush on that one corner that we always want to sniff. So instead of trying to walk past it, mm-hmm. um, I walk towards it to so that he doesn't have to pull and doesn't have to then be reinforced for pulling or then I have to like go into this whole loose, loose leash training session that I don't want to do. Um, we just walk towards it together. Yeah. Um, and this can be really frustrating. I am someone who likes to move when I yeah. walk. I am a fast walker. I like to cover ground. When I am able, I walk Barley on a long line. You know, I've got a 30 foot long line that I'll walk him on. And gasp, sometimes I walk him on a flexi lead so that he can sniff and I can walk. Yeah, yeah. I am careful about when I choose to use those two tools because both of those could easily clothesline a biker yeah. um, or be a pain in the butt for someone else who's trying to move their shy dog past me. Um, but I do use both of those tools so that both my needs of walking quickly and at a consistent pace and Barley's need to sniff can be met at the same time. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing that up because I was going to also bring it up that like I, this can be very frustrating for me. And as Sully ages, he walks a little slower too. And I have to really breathe and, and, you know, just sort of like let him sniff. And I always, I envision all of, all of those shirts that are like, let them sniff. Right. (laughs) Because, you know, it's, we're so used to just prompting them and moving them along. And I think it is, I definitely have to have a a very intentional awareness to make sure that I'm, I'm giving him the space that he needs to engage in that. And that it's not all about my agenda of covering ground. Like I, I love that phrase that you used because it, it is really, really great. And it's crucial to let them sniff on walks. I mean, I, I think that that's, it's, such a way for them to be gathering information about their, their space in addition to just having an enriching time on the walk, right? It's not, it's not all about us. We are going on a walk together. So I appreciate that. So speaking of sniffing on walks, what is this sport called nose work, Kayla? Yeah, so nose work is an AKC sport, and I imagine there are probably UKC and CKC versions of it um, that basically start out with teaching your dog to sniff out a given scent um, in the AKC. It's birch, anise, and clove essential oils. Um, So it starts out with what's called an odor recognition test, which is basically a super duper easy um, row of boxes with scent in one of them, just to kind of show that your dog can, in fact, find that odor and recognize that odor. And you can recognize when your dog recognizes the odor. From there, there are basically competitions where each dog is given the same type of problems. And your dog's job is to find that scent. And your job is to know when your dog finds the scent. There is a judge who tells you whether you are correct or incorrect. And then you can go on up, excuse me, through the levels um, all the way up to, I, you know, neither one of us, I think, is trialing and nose work. Mm -hmm. I am not currently. um, But I know it does get very, very difficult with things like converging odors. There are two scents, two hides is what they're called close enough to each other that their scent pools are overlapping and your dog has to be able to find both of them and all sorts of really, really interesting stuff. But at the basic levels, it's generally just going into, you know, they'll rent out a school or um, where else do they have them? I know they have them a lot at schools. They have these schools or like parking lots or Uh warehouses at times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and your dog's job is just to find that odor. Um, so we'll link to a couple websites for different ways to find nose work instructors and to get started. Um, and Marissa and I were actually both introduced to nose work and scent enrichment through taking an intro to odor class together. Um, and uh, yeah, we've both had a blast with it. Um, I've taken it now in more of a kind of a professional direction. But if I ever end up leaving working dogs for conservation, I would 
absolutely love to get back into it as kind of a sport. Um, and there's no reason that Barley and I can't do it now um, with working dogs for conservation as well. It's mostly just um, Montana is a very difficult place to be a dog sports competitor. Um, I am not dedicated enough to drive as far as would be required. <laughs> So, um, and, and so in terms of nose work, are, are you engaging with your clients? Like, like it's not, it's not just for sports, right? It is also for your everyday. So we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. And then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more specifically about using nose work as a tool in our toolbox for behavior modification plans for dogs who are worried about the world. Hey guys, it's Marissa Martino from Pause and Reward. Does your dog pull, bark, or lunge while on walks? Are you having a hard time walking your dog, feeling embarrassed and not sure how to handle the situation? Visit my website at, at pauseandreward.com to receive a free gift designed to help you achieve the connected walks you and your dog so desire. You'll receive videos and educational materials to support your process. Visit pauseandreward.com to get started. So Marissa, tell us a little bit more about using nose work as part of our behavior modification plans. Yeah, so I think uh, we're going to divide this this part in, into three categories. And the, uh, the first one would be to build confidence for fearful dogs. So w how we see this working is um, lots of times when you have a dog that is fearful of their environment, they are fixated or focused on the environment. So what's coming into the, into the environment, what's coming out of the environment, are people reaching for this dog? Are there other dogs around? And so they're hypersensitive or they're pretty alert in that environment. And so how we've seen nose work really support these dogs is by teaching them the game. And we, we will we will talk to you a little bit about how we do that next, but we teach them the game in an environment that they are feeling comfortable in. So they learn how to hunt for food um, in, let's say, their living room. And then we can start to expand and bring that that search game, that really fun uh, scent hunting game into maybe an environment that is a little bit more stressful for them. Always being careful to keep the dog under threshold as best you can by reading their body language and making sure that we're not pushing them too far. Um, but the idea is that we're, we're, we're bringing something that is really familiar to them, something that allows them to drop into the environment and investigate and, and hunt for something. And we're bringing that whole system, that whole game into another environment and teaching them to drop into that environment and investigate and, you know, create that positive association to that, to that space as well. And um, I actually was just at a client this morning and the dog is actually nervous of me and he does a really good job communicating by staying like at least a foot or so away from me. And, um, he, I started, um, I was giving them a mental, I was giving them a nose work plan because, uh, just because he is one of those iron dogs or, or, uh, athlete dogs that Kayla was talking about and they need to mentally enrich him a little bit more. Um, and so I was, I was showing them how to do nose work and I was putting the boxes out and loading up the boxes with, with a bunch of high value treats. And he started approaching me more and investigating the environment more and, um, you know, reapproached me when, when the boxes were empty and he had collected all of, all of his treats, um, and sort of leaned in to my petting. And so it, it's, it is a really lovely way to build confidence in these guys without having it be this like really cumbersome training plan. It just becomes this really fun game for both you and the dog. So that's one example. Um, another example is uh, working with dogs that that could be reactive to their environment. So again, they're still maybe worried about their the environment, maybe anxious, they're feeling overstimulated by the environment. But now they might be barking and lunging at you know the site of a, a B and C trigger. Um, and so another client comes to mind. Um, it was really interesting. She called me and said, "My dog is pulling." on leash and I really want to work on him walking next to me. And when I, when I arrived, I saw a very anxious dog that would eventually bark 
and pull when he saw another dog or, or another person. And it was interesting because she never would have labeled him anxious. Um, you know, he, he, but he, he had really hard time focusing and he was, he wasn't pulling just because he was excited and he, and he wanted to go, you know, say hello to the world. He was pulling in this darty fashion because he, he was stressed out by his environment. And so every single time we, she walked out the front door, he immediately assumed those, that suite of behaviors. And so I wanted to change the way that he associated the front yard at least. And we taught him how to do nose work in the backyard, right? So we use an environment where he felt really comfortable. And then we moved that game to the front yard. And she was like, within two days, she emailed me. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. He is way more focused. I feel more connected to him. And part, part of the reason why we used nose work is because we really couldn't, if we took him on a walk, he's overstimulated and pulling and, and lunging. And she really didn't feel comfortable walking him. So I'm like, okay, how am I gonna, how am I gonna like exercise this one and a half year old male, right? Like I'm going to have to do some mental enrichment. And then it sort of worked out to, he would walk outside, engage it in, a, a, a you know, the, hunting game, the nose work game. And then he would check in with mom and then he was able to learn. And that's when we started to do a lot of the loose leash walking. But I don't feel like if we started there that he was in a place to process that information because he was pretty overstimulated and he was rehearsing this same behavioral pattern. So those are, you know, the two the two big categories in terms of how to help animals that, that are feeling really stressed. What's the last category, Kayla, that we that we really feel like it's it's super important to push nose work? Yeah. And this would just be mental stimulation, which we've already been hammering quite a bit. Um, you know, I know I've used mental stimulation. Um, a lot of my reactive dog clients need more exercise. Mm -hmm. um, very obviously, I'm sure that many of my fearful dog clients also would enjoy more exercise, but it's harder to tell with them because they're often so worried about the world. You don't see that 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 like frantic high energy, energy yeah, the frantic quite energy. as much mm -hmm. um at least that's the trend that i have seen um but also you know when i'm hired just for an overexcited greeter who doesn't necessarily you know it's not a huge behavior issue it's yep. just a lack of training but also that dog needs more um you know young parents who have a dog um nose work is really easy to add in for them um or when people bring home working breeds um and potentially are underprepared for them i know i certainly was when i brought home barley um i you know i was fresh out of college he was my first dog and he is a working border collie mm -hmm. um and that has worked out very well for us now <laughs> yeah um but there were definitely some times in the beginning um and you know a lot of people they're not lucky enough to end up getting hired by working dogs for conservation to work with their dog um so people who do end up with you know these adolescent pointers or border collies or shepherds mm -hmm. or mutts you know it doesn't have to be a purpose-bred dog to feel over your head um and again we've talked about how nose work can be done well and made challenging enough it can be very tiring very quickly for your yeah. dog um and these dogs that really kind of quote unquote need a job um this can be that job um yeah yeah and because i think there's there is some truth to the adage that a tired dog is a happy dog um but just running your dog until they're exhausted is in my experience less effective yeah. than a combination of physical and mental exercise to make a happier dog Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. Yeah. I think the mental stimulation, it, it feels more complete from a holistic perspective, right? It's not yeah. like I'm not just like running my dog to the ground next to my bike. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that doesn't feel, yeah. it doesn't feel good to me. Um, you know, yeah. trying to enrich all of their senses feels way more complete mm -hmm. than just choosing one and hammering it home. Yeah. And it's even interesting, you know, when I, when I watch people play fetch or when I play fetch with a dog, um, I find many dogs are tired in a way that seems more relaxed. If you play fetch in really tall grass and the dog is spending a lot of time searching, which mm. hello is oh, more fun. mental enrichment yeah. than if you're out in um, a football field and you're just chucketing it yeah. over and over and over again. And yes, that will tire out your dog physically. Um, 
but I've actually in general found that I if I'm using fetch as a way to tire out a dog, which I don't tend to do anyway, which mm-hmm. we don't have to get into right now, but I don't tend to use fetch as a main form of exercise anymore. If and when I do or when I'm playing it anyway, I like to do it in tall grass, yeah. um, which is really helping that dog search for it. Yeah, I love that. What a great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fetch is like its own its own podcast episode. Yeah, fetch can be yeah. controversial. <laughs> As someone with a dog who, um, I, oh my god, t- we're we're going down the fetch tangent if that's yeah. all right. Um, I brought home a foam roller the other day, and that foam roller came with like a little bonus peanut thing that like I could like put on my desk and roll out my forearm, or like uh-huh. you can pin Ooh. it against your wall to roll yeah. out your triceps. I'm so happy with it. Um, my dog spent the first three days after I brought it home staring at it. Oh my like, god! I have an incredibly upset. <laughs> so it looks, it roughly looks like if you put two tennis balls in a sock, uh-huh. and then tied that sock. Oh off. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so you know the right size and shape for my poor little border collie to lose his bleep over. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I mean we we've talked about him before and his obsession with fetch on the podcast. But I, after owning him, I very firmly believe that it is possible to love something too much. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he. Yeah. Yeah. And many dogs can play fetch without it being as problematic. But anyway, I like incorporating that nose work searching aspect of fetch whenever possible. And kind of with that as well, I I personally find that nose work and scent enrichment really helps teach a dog that skill. And this is, I think, kind of what you're talking about with your reactive dog client of slowing down and paying attention to something else Mm -hmm. um it's one thing i can get a lot more success in a training session with a dog if i run that dog next to a bike or play fetch with it or whatever it is until that dog is tired um yeah i might be able to get more kind of calm looking behavior and that's not i'm not saying that i never use that like i absolutely in my agility classes i frequently take barley for a run before going to agility intentionally Mm mm-hmm to help him slow down a little bit in agility so that, I mean, I can't keep up with him when he's running at full speed and I'm not able to learn when he's running at full speed. I'm not entirely convinced he's able to learn right now Mm -hmm. when he's running at full speed. Anyway, so I do use the physical enrichment, but I also find, you know, with an overexcited greeter, for example, it's part of the puzzle to give that dog adequate physical exercise, but it's not really helpful for my clients if they have to take their dog for a four mile run before guests come over. And I find a, it's easier for my clients to do a 15 minute nose work session before their Super Bowl guests come over. And B it actually helps teach that dog the skill versus the fact that the dog isn't exhibiting the behavior just because the dog is tired. Mm -hmm. At least that's my experience. Um, Mm -hmm. Does that yeah. make sense? Is that is that distinction clear to you as far as what I'm saying, Rosa? Yeah, it's it's clear to me. And I think uh, the most important part of that point is you're absolutely right. It is more sustainable to say do a 15 minute nose work session versus go on, you know, take an hour and run your dog. I mean, like that's, yeah. that's not yeah. really Even if it's realistic. not teaching the skill, yeah. which I think it is teaching the skill to slow down and think more, but even if it isn't, even if I'm totally wrong for your case, for your dog, or maybe for all dogs, and this is just totally placebo effect in Kayla's brain, um, <laughs> it's still easier yeah, <laughs> than running it is. and it doesn't it require you to shower. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is my main goal in life is to avoid showering. So <laughs> I didn't know that. No, it, it's not. I'm actually my hair is wet from recently oh, showering. Okay, I'm very proud. So, uh, yeah. so I'm gonna ask you. I mean, we 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 are just like loving on nose work. I mean, I I yep. always I want to get like a shirt made that it's like all else fails nose work. Uh, I love teaching it. It's so Merch. fun. I, I, Birch, I taught it to my clients this morning and they were adorable. They were like, this is so fun to just watch the dog. And I was like, yes, I love that you love to watch your dog. Um, so how do you teach it? Like we keep talking about this thing called Mm -hmm. nose work. How do you, and there's a million ways to do it, but how do you do it, Kayla? Okay. So I do it two different ways. Mm. I'm going to tell you. First, the way that I do it when I'm planning on introducing the dog to a specific odor. And then if you want, Marissa, you can backtrack and talk about how you do it to teach dogs to find treats. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, so when I'm teaching a dog to find a specific odor, which is what I tend to do, partially because that's my job, I also have been getting contacted more and more by people who want to train their dogs to find antler sheds. Um, I also just, I personally almost find it easier and more clear to teach the dog to find odor right away than to find treats. Um, but it depends on the client. Sometimes I'm just going to go the treat route. Anyway, mm-hmm. so what I do is I figure out what our target odor is going to be. So for this example, let's say it's an antler shred, just because that is kind of what I, the only thing that I tend to get paid by people to train their dogs to find right away. Can um, I ask why? Like, what, what is, what's, what is that? Oh, it like, so if an elk or a deer drops its antler. Got it. Um, which they do every December, January-ish, um, uh-huh. people like to find them. Oh, oh, wow. And then make chandeliers out of them? I'm not quite sure okay. what you do with them once you find them. <laughs> like, this is like um, a little, a niche, a niche thing. <laughs> it's not very niche in Montana, Marissa. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, no, I've like, I don't advertise this, but I've gotten like three calls in the last three months. That's funny. Which I is like kind of a lot of calls on that particular Given topic. that I don't yeah. advertise it and I like, you know, I have a full-time job with working dogs for conservation. I'm not trying to find clients really. So it's interesting. Anyway. Anyway, sorry. We digress. Go ahead. We digress. Um, <laughs> so what I will generally start with there is I will have um, a, a, that scent sample. And then I will have one of the dog's very favorite things in the whole world. So that might be liver, might be roast chicken, might be a ball, whatever it is. But it's something that the dog goes gaga for. We're not talking mm-hmm. about praise and petting here. And then I have one container. Um, When I do this with barley, I am very sloppy and often just use my hands. Um, But that's not necessarily good odor uh, contamination. Don't Mm, do that. Yeah. Um, Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. Um, So I'll just have one container, like an Amazon box. And I put that box out with the target in it. And then the dog goes up and the dog puts his head in the box to check out what it is. Because we're in a room and I just put a box down and the dog is like, what's the box for? Yeah. Um, Most dogs are going to do that immediately. And I immediately reward the dog with whatever his favorite thing is. If the dog is a little bit on the shyer side, I'm not necessarily going to hit him in the head with the tennis ball. Um, some, But if a dog is going to be into that sort of thing, then yes, you hit him on the head with the tennis ball. <laughs> um, and we do that over and over until the dog is pretty excited to be moving towards that box with the odor in it. And the dog isn't making any mistakes because there's only one box and that box always has the odor in it. Mm -hmm. After doing that, maybe five or ten times, kind of depends on the dog, how quick they're picking up on the game. Then I add in a second box that doesn't have anything in it. I generally make that box a little bit further away, a little bit less appealing somehow. So again, the dog is very likely to be getting it right every single time. Gradually move those boxes closer and closer together. Um... And then, you know, as the dog is getting better, we might add in, we'll add in more boxes. Once we're at the point where the dog is finding the correct odor in the correct box out of, you know, maybe five or six boxes, then I kind of tend to start in adding in some complexity. So we're scattering them or we've got them in a circle or we've got them in a line um, or we've got a couple chairs scattered around. So the dog has to navigate around the, ta- the chairs. And then we just kind of keep increasing the difficulty. So maybe we were searching in, I live in a studio apartment, so we were searching in the studio in the one room that I own. Um, And then we might start doing it in the apartment hallway, which is, you know, 50, 100 feet long, whatever um, that distance is. And we're increasing the search size, or I'm turning on a fan, or I'm turning on my AC, or I'm opening the window, something to add some airflow. I might put a couple boxes up on my my couch and another one under my desk and another one inside the kennel. And we're just varying ways to add complexity. Um, and moving forward as the dogs remain successful. Um, the key here is we're not adding too many variables at once mm-hmm. and we're not making yeah. it too hard too quickly. I very much so. Um, last time I taught my dog Barley a new scent, um, I think we only had four or five errors over the first three weeks of training because I'm really careful about how I add in new levels of complexity for him. He also is, you know, he's a detection dog. Learning a new scent for him is much easier than it will be for a dog who is learning his or her first scent. But I'm very careful to make sure that it's not frustrating for the dog and the dog is getting rewarded every time. And if the dog guesses and is incorrect, first off, 
I double check to make sure that I'm not the one who was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually had a situation just a couple weeks ago where I was training barley to find this noxious weed, this invasive species of plant. And I had put two samples out and it's dark. This was one of those times where I had like 15 minutes where I had like, I had gotten home from a run, I had showered and I needed to eat dinner and exercise the dog in less than 15 minutes so that I could get to my next thing. So we're doing a really quick training session and I'm like eating my mac and cheese while I'm training (laughs) (laughs) and Barley lies down, which is his alert. Um, not where I thought that I had hidden the thing. And I go over and I shine my light on and it's like snowing and it's just, I was like, oh, what am I doing? Why is my dog doing this? And there was actually a root from the plant that I must have dropped oh, sitting wow. on top of the snow. Um, so I always double check that I'm not wrong. Um, or sometimes, you know, depending on what you're using, if it's relatively stinky, it could be, it could have marked your box. Been like residual could, odor. Yeah. Yeah. It could be on your carpet. It could be any of those things. Ultimately, yes, we want to train our dogs to ignore that residual odor, at least in my line of work. Mm-hmm. But double check that your dog isn't actually correct. Mm-hmm. And then if they are incorrect, they've just made a guess. It's no big deal. I, you know, if the dog is on leash, I'll just kind of move them along and maybe take a step in the correct direction mm-hmm. towards what we're doing and just get them searching again. Mm-hmm. Um, common mistakes people make, um, other than making it too hard, um, don't go and stand on the opposite side of the box with the odor in it and stare at the box until your dog comes over and checks the box. Um, that is not teaching your dog to use his nose. That is teaching your dog to mm-hmm. watch you. Yep. Um, which I guess, depending on your goals, could be fine. Not fine for my line of work, because if I am being paid to go out there and find all of the invasive weeds out on a hillside, I don't know where those are. So yeah. I can't have my dog thinking that I always know where they are because the, we're, <laughs> what are we doing out there then? <laughs> what are some other common mistakes that we make, Marissa? I know I've made most of them, but I'm um, thinking. I think... Yeah, some, I mean, this is very similar to this. And this is what happened a lot in my intro to nose work class where um, people would be, uh, they would, they would open and close their treat bag. They would make like crinkly noises. They would engage with their dog, like talk to them. Um, You know, I think that Especially, I mean, Sully didn't care in in our class. He was just like, I don't really care what Marissa is doing. And I'm just dropping into this game and having a a lot of fun. Whereas like a lot of the herding breeds, they were like, yes, mom. Yes, dad. Like, what did you need from me? A sit, a down, right? And it really is about like you're doing it together as a team. And it's this really beautiful sort of dance together. But you're not doing it in your like formal dog training setting where I'm standing and the dog is standing in front of me and we're engaging and looking at one another and I'm cueing and they're doing behaviors. It's not like that. It is basically like go drop into the environment and be a dog. Um, and so I think when people engage a lot, it, it pulls the dog out of the search. Um, yeah. so and I tell I know, my clients to be quiet. Yeah. On the, the other side of that same coin, perhaps, I know it's very tempting and difficult for me and many of my clients. They want to reward the dog for engaging with them or for checking in with them. Mm-hmm. And in this particular scenario, you generally don't want to be doing that. Yeah. Counterintuitive for them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want, you know, especially if one of your goals is having a dog who listens to you better And, you know, we talk all the time about smart times 50 and you might want to be rewarding your dog for looking at you. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is not the time for that. Not. Yeah. I very specifically when I'm working with Barley off leash in a detection scenario, I might reward him with food for recalls or check ins. Um, you know, if we're in like grizzly territory, I'm fine with that, but he does not get his ball for recalls or check-ins and for barley, that kind of hierarchy of reinforcers is different enough that that keeps him very motivated to search. Um, but he still, um, is able to respond to my obedience Mm -hmm. cues. If I use food for obedience and a ball for searching your dog, 
you know, your mileage may vary um, yeah. depending on your dog's hierarchy of reinforcers. That might be different for you. Or you could have a dog who doesn't have a clearly enough hierarchy, uh, clearly enough defined hierarchy for you to use that strategy. And again, that's relatively specific to my line of work. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, going back to what you were saying earlier, you were going to uh, tell our listeners a little bit mm-hmm. about like how you do it, given your line of work and teaching specific odors. And I was going to talk about, you know, a little bit about how I introduce treats. And I have to say, I pretty much introduce it very similarly. I mean, I probably mm-hmm. just, just, just for ease of clarity for our listeners, I am also using boxes and we didn't really talk about why we use boxes. Um, yeah. you know, the boxes in, from my understanding, they are this really great environmental cue for the dog to go, Oh, whenever I put my nose in there, there's something really, really good. I'm going to like, whenever I see boxes, it's going to cue the game for me to start searching. I introduced the game to the dog by like Kayla was saying, I put out a bunch of different boxes. Let's say I have five boxes and every single box has a treat in the beginning. This is what uh, Kayla was talking about in terms of that, like errorless learning. We want to make sure that the dog is like, wow, like every single time I go to a box, this is just so awesome. And oh, so, so you actually start with multiple boxes. So that, that is a slight difference. That, you're that right. It, you're right. That is, so, that is cause slight. I, start, I just start with the one. You start with the one. I start with many, mm-hmm. but you start with many. That yeah. all, so it's the same concept. Correct. I don't know. I, I would be really interested in let's and trying it with a bunch of different dogs and seeing if that creates any different searching patterns or styles or how that differs as far as learning. Anyway. Yeah. It's interesting. I yeah. find, I don't, I, and maybe I'm doing it wrong. We'll see. But <laughs> I find that like, even today in this dog, this dog is very scent oriented already. Um, we were in a super small space, like, I mean, not super small, but we were in, we were in a living room. So like eight by 10, so small space. I put out four boxes and these boxes weren't scary to go into. Like they were pretty wide open and pretty big. And that is a, that is an asterisk here. Sometimes going it, like putting a head, a head into a box can be scary for some of our shy and fearful dogs. So sometimes I might flip a box on it side and put the treat right at the edge so that so that mm-hmm. that that's that fearful dog doesn't have to put their head all the way in that in that scary yeah. dark thing um however side note um i put four or five boxes out i think and i put and every single box got a treat and he went around the room and gathered all of the treats outside and we did this like maybe I think we loaded the boxes with treats like five times in a row. And then I started to put some of the treats outside of the box, but still close to the box. And within, you know, 20 minutes, he was already searching for, for treats that were on the ground that were like a foot away from the box. And we, so we moved pretty quickly, mm-hmm. but he, he got it. He got each step of the way uh, correct. And if for some reason he was struggling or he wasn't dropping into his environment, I wouldn't have pushed that far. Um, but just because we were in such a small environment, he had gotten so many repetitions, correct. And he was starting to sort of air scent and like drop his nose on the ground. Mm -hmm. Like he, he wasn't visual. He wasn't relying on his vision a lot. Like he was really using his nose to sort of track the environment. So we did move pretty quick we did move quickly to teach him that, you know, sense or hides will also happen outside of the boxes as well to eventually, cause my goal is to eventually fade the boxes out, right? Like I want to, I want to introduce the game using the boxes, but then, you know, by maybe like the fourth or fifth session, I want to, I want to fade the boxes out, like maybe, yeah. or even reduce the number of the boxes so that they're there to like get, have him get an easy win. Like every box always means that, that he gets, um, a treat. And so I try to fade them out because eventually you want to just be hiding the treats around the house without the boxes. And you want, you want to be able to say search, he goes and he hunts for them. Right. So I also try to get the dogs off of boxes pretty quickly. I think with Barley's most recent scent, we were off of boxes by our third training session. Um, and actually, the scent I taught him before that, um, which was black-footed ferret scent, I actually never used boxes at all. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is, and I think I did the same thing with zebra mussels actually. Yeah. Um, but again, I also already have a dog who already gets, he gets the, the concept game. of yeah. searching. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit different. Um, do you have anything else to add? Otherwise I had, I had two things that I wanted to add in. No, go um, ahead. So one, I just kind of wanted to recap variables to consider when we're increasing yeah, the difficulty of nose work. Thank you. So one is going to be the location of the search. Is this an area that's familiar or unfamiliar to the, to your dog? Is it something that would, a place that would be nerve, nerve wracking or distracting to your dog? Cause that's mm-hmm. going to make it much harder. Um, that is something that I intentionally do ultimately, you know, Barley and I will go to the lumber yard at, um, Home Depot and search there, which is like not a place he goes very often. Um, and mm-hmm. we'll do that intentionally, but you're not going to start there. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, And then your search size. You know, I talked about that. I have a studio apartment. um, So I, even if I use my entire apartment, it's still only, I think, 800 square feet. No, 400 square feet. It's little. Um, My rent is $800. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's $2 a square foot. Let's actually reverse those two things. (laughs) Yeah, that would be... Let's talk to my landlord. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> the search size. Um, you know, so I very quickly will start using my entire apartment. Those of you guys who are fortunate enough to live in a larger space might just start out using a single room with your dog at first. Um, and then ultimately, my dog and I are searching multi-hundred acre areas. Um, you guys probably don't ever want to get to that because that doesn't really meet the purpose of making this fast. Yeah. And fun. <laughs> <laughs> or fun. <Yeah. laughs> um, you get very tired and very dusty that way. You might as well just go for a hike. Um, but yes, making the the area bigger and therefore making the time and distance that your dog has to travel in between each hide larger is going to make this harder. Whether or not your hides are inside or outside of the boxes is going to make this easier or harder. Um, height. So a lot of times we're starting out flat on the ground. That tends to be relatively easy for dogs. Anywhere up to about your dog's nose height should be relatively easy for your dog. Anything above that starts getting much more challenging. Um, And you can really start doing some really fun games with that. One of my favorite exercises is to actually get strings um, and like clothes wire them across your apartment. And then you can actually clip, um, you know, using clothespins, you can clip your hides and then blanks out so that, you know, you might, I use um, loose leaf tea balls, tea balls for the scent. So I'll have the scent in one loose leaf tea ball and then I'll have a couple other blank tea balls out. And those will be above my dog's head height. So he's actually got a search um, above his head. That's a really fun exercise for That's a fun. quite advanced dog. Um, so height. And obviously if it's like above my head, that just means that that pool of odor, so you think then the the odor is going to be coming down in kind of a cone, right? The higher the height, the larger the base of that cone, which means that it's going to be harder for your dog to find the center of that cone. And then the next variable is wind speed and direction. So if you've got a hide that's six feet up, and then even if you've got a light breeze, the the area where the most odor is, is not going to be directly under that we're getting a little complicated here. Most Mm -hmm. of you guys are not going to be there anytime soon, but these are things we have to think about. Wind speed and direction can make things easier or harder. Mm -hmm. Um, When we were first learning nose work, we very much so focused on trying to keep minimal wind movement. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, I've now spoken to more people who actually like having a light breeze right away because that starts encouraging the dogs to air scent more quickly. Got it. Interesting. So really, really still really, really stagnant air just means the odor isn't moving and the dog actually has to get his nose basically directly onto the hide in order to find that odor versus a light breeze is going to help that odor move a lot more, teach your dog to work that scent cone and allow your dog to run into the odor maybe a couple feet away from it versus again, if the air is incredibly still, your dog has to get his nose directly onto it in order to sniff it, which is really hard. Yeah. Especially when they're higher or like behind things. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you you could make this really, really hard. Complex. Yeah. 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 Really, really still air does not necessarily mean it's easier. Um, direction of the wind can also be a variable. So if say the wind is, this is very hard in an auditory format and I apologize if this gets confusing, but say the wind is moving east to west. If you, let's think, how does this work? 
east to west. If you are also searching east to west, so you mm-hmm. are starting on the east side and moving in a zigzag pattern westward, your dog has fewer opportunities to run into each individual scent cone, mm-hmm. right? Because the scent is moving away from you and your dog as you and your dog are moving. Versus if the wind is moving east to west and you guys start at the west side of your search area and move into it, you're going to move into that odor and you're more likely, your dog has more chances on each pass to run into that odor. Mm -hmm. Depending on the wind speed and how stinky your target is and how dense your target is, you still might want to move east to west or west to east. But in advanced areas, this is something that you need to start thinking about. Again, not something that we're going to be thinking about right away. The yeah. final thing, that, go ahead. Well, no, what I was going to say is like, yes, that might feel complex to like our average pet parent, but I think it it's, is really good to know that odor is its own science, right? Yes. And, and that like, just because he, your dog was crushing the game in the garage or crushing the game in the living room, if you're having a hard time when you go outside, and it's like a mildly windy day. It's like, well, it's not just that your dog is being stubborn or doesn't want to play the mm-hmm. game or whatever. I mean, there's all these variables that right. Kayla is talking about. So it's, it's, it, it, you don't have to know all the science of odor, but just to give your, your dog a break and give yourself a break. And how could you make that, that, that sort of search area way easier because you have yeah. upped the distraction level or upped the difficulty by moving it outside. So. Yeah, and maybe if you're getting 70 mile an hour straight line winds, today is not the day to play nose work outdoors. Yeah, t- no, it's inside. You know, I mean, and, and at a very high level, yes, we do that. We just had a dog who was down doing Puma surveys in um, Argentina, no, Chile, um, Patagonia. Um, and they get 70 mile an hour straight line winds all day, every day. And this dog was working through it. Wow. She's crazy. also a professional. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It was. We were very impressed with her. Um, she also was finding cat scat, which is pretty stinky. Um, mm-hmm. So that helps. Yeah. Um, you know, and there are ways to introduce wind for your dog. Um, you know, adding a fan mm-hmm. just indoors can be a nice way to control it. Um, don't set it on oscillate right away because that makes it a lot harder. Mm-hmm. If you want to make it a lot harder, ultimately, yeah, set your fan to oscillate open a window, crack a door, go outside. There are ways to kind of gradually add this in. Um, And then finally, one of the other things to think about is temperature. Mm -hmm. If we think hotter temperatures mean molecules are moving more quickly, um, that means that scent is moving faster and is more volatile at higher temperatures. So if you guys are in a really, really hot garage in the summer, that means that your odor pool is going to be bigger, which can be harder or easier, kind of depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. Same goes with really, really cold air. If you're trying to search in your garage in Montana in the winter, um, our garage at work is freezing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's generally colder than it is outdoors. That odor is not moving hardly at all, which is really great if we're trying to teach our dogs to do detailed searches. Mm-hmm. But if you're really trying to work on your dog's detection distance, not great. Um, again, just think about all of these variables. And even if you're not able to kind of like create a score for how difficult a search is based on all these variables, that's fine. I can't either, but just keep them in mind. And if your dog is having a hard time or if your dog is really on fire on a given day, just try to think about it a little bit and see if any of these factors jumps out as you as like a potential reason why. Yeah. And the reason why we really are encouraging you guys to sort of like, to, to become aware and geek out with us on this is because the harder, well, number one, it's just so stinking cool. When you watch your dog do what they are doing with their nose, with their superpower, like we called it. I mean, it is, there's nothing that makes me more happy than watching a dog, um, search for odor. Um, but it's also really fun to geek out because it helps you make this game harder and harder and harder based on the dog's success rate, right? Like we want you to make it harder because then it's more complex mental stimulation opportunities that you're giving the dog, which is ultimately going to serve you and the dog, right? That it's, it's, it's going to give them, um, opportunities to sort of relax, drop into their environment, build confidence, like all the amazing things that we love about scent enrichment. Um, and so geeking out about all these little elements is only going to support 
you making this game more exciting and have such a variety in the dog's life so absolutely and if you guys want to geek out super hard i just discovered the podcast canines talking sense like sense instead of sense Uh uh-huh s-c-e-n-t-s okay Um, we'll link in the show notes yeah we'll link to it um and i'll link to a couple that are um a couple of my favorites um just so you know. guys have an, a yeah, good episode I wanna, to start I want to listen to that. I know. Um, so if you guys are excited and want to geek out, great. So let's start wrapping it up with how can people start incorporating this into their daily schedule? Yeah. So um, if you haven't purchased a copy of Canine Enrichment for the Real World, you need to add it to your Amazon cart. So we'll, we will link to it in the show notes. And it's written by my dear friends, Ali Bender and Emily Strong. And the reason why I'm bringing up this book is because uh, I love how they provide a lot of great, I mean, it's all about enrichment. It's not just scent enrichment, um, but they talk about ways of incorporating it into your daily life. Hence the the title canine enrichment for the real world. Um, and they do a really, really good job on page 170 in the book. They provide real world examples of taking existing activities that you're already doing with your dog and sort of like, you know, tuning it up to, uh, you know, just ha- have a little bit more enrichment flair to it. So, you know, they talk about working smarter and not harder. So a few examples that they talk about are, um, so you're already going to feed your dog. Like that's going to happen two to three times a day, you know, if it's a puppy or if it's an adult dog, instead try scatter feeding their meal in the backyard or on the carpet, right? So taking their meal, not raw. I don't think that you should be scattering raw everywhere, but if they're eating kibble, Ew, so much. Ew. Um, but like if you've got a fr- freeze dried raw or or if you've got kibble, like scattering that all over the backyard or in the living room or something like that for, for, or in a in a snuffle mat. We will link to that in the sh- in the show notes as well. Love a snuffle mat. And um, y- then your dog can actually hunt for their mo- their meal instead of eating it from the bowl. Um, another example that they use, if you're already taking your dog for a walk just let them sniff a variety of areas, right? So sort of breathe, take a moment, drop into your environment as well, and let them smell all the amazing smells in the environment. Another example is if you're already playing fetch or tug, use that toy and add some enrichment sense that we were talking about in the beginning of the episode and, and make that particular toy a little bit more exciting or enticing using the scent. And then lastly, if you're already vegging out in front of the TV, which we do, right, use that time to give your dog a frozen topple or a lick mat or um, a snuffle mat with, with his or her food. So these are activities that you're already doing and they have a whole chapter on how to incorporate this into your everyday life which I think is just such a wonderful opportunity to teach pet parents how to provide additional enrichment with existing activities so um, I love that yeah their book is so good so grab that book and we will also link to in the show notes to Emily Strong one of the authors was on the podcast talking about amazing techniques and uh, we will link to that in the show notes as well so big shout out to Allie and Emily so we have talked a lot about noses a lot about sense um if you couldn't tell, Kayla and I love this stuff. It is so fun. And it's one of my favorite things to teach pet parents. And it, and it usually is one of their favorite things, too. So if you haven't tried this, we are laying on thick that you need to try it. So yeah. I am Marissa Martino, owner of Paws and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. And you can find me online at pawsandreward.com. And I'm Kayla Fratt, the owner of Journey Dog Training. You can find me online at journeydogtraining.com, also on YouTube and Instagram and all that good stuff with me and Barley. Um, and you guys occasionally, especially if you're on our Instagram, which is Collie Without Borders, you will see training videos of us doing detection stuff, which I personally think is very fun to watch. You guys can also check out Working Dogs for Conservation to see nothing but detection work there. Awesome. So before we go, be sure to subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. That is canine all spelled out and convos, which is short for conversation because Canine Conversations is owned by someone else. 
<laughs> you guys can also contact us at hello at canineconvos.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. We have a Facebook page. You can interact with us there. And we, yeah, we love hearing from you guys. You can also help us out um, without, um, you know, we're not asking for your money here. Write us a review wherever you listen to us. You can visit our individual businesses. Marissa's in Boulder, Ursa is in Denver, I'm in Missoula. Um, you can find all of us online and you can like and follow us on social media. All of that helps us out a ton and it helps other people find us. Our theme music is called Funny Song, and it's provided royalty-free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beheard.org.uk, and our logo is from Walker Hooper. You can find his ins- his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. And once again, thank you guys so much for listening. It's been fun. Bye. Bye.